Uh, my name is Sarah. And my name is Antonis. And welcome to Brain Fork, a podcast where me and Antonis talk about mental health in tech and also mental health in design. And today we're actually going to have a guest. That's pretty great, right, Antonis? Woo! Woo! It's super great. I'm very excited. I am super excited that someone actually wanted to talk to us. And uh, so now let's interview thing, kind of? Yes, we're, we're about to roll it. The curtain will go up. The drum roll may not happen, but please, everyone, imagine that there's a drum roll and dramatic music in. No? Thank you, Sarah. You're welcome. And we're on. Thank you so much, Nina, for coming to our podcast and speak to us and be uh, the first guest that we have. And uh, would you like to start by introducing yourself? What do you currently do and what passions do you have in life? Let's get deep right in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, well, first off, thank you so much for having me. I am really excited about our topic for today. And my name is Nina Zakarenko. I'm currently a cloud developer advocate at Microsoft with a focus on Python the Python programming language. And before that, I was um, in engineering for 12 years, working for some companies that you might have heard of, like Meetup, HBO, and Reddit. In terms of tech, my passions are Python. I really like tinkering in my spare time with uh, microcontrollers and electronics. If I'm outside, I like to snowboard and ski and ride my mountain bike. Oh, I tried snowboarding once. My legs still hurt, and that was about two years ago. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It is not easy to learn. It's really hard to start. It's not easy to learn, but once you kind of get going, it's it's pretty easy to pick it up. I've heard that it's kind of the opposite of skiing. I tried skiing and it was fine. And uh, I like, but you can't do anything cool with it. And snowboarding is like everything hurts, but then you're going to be cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, I do both. So I, I get both sides of the coin. Oh, okay. So if you're feeling tired, just go ski. <laughs> That's awesome. So you're going to talk to us about burnout, right? Yep. Burnout. Coming to you as, a, I don't want to say quite an expert, but at least somebody who has experienced burnout in their career and experienced it pretty hard. I think you can say that you're an expert because it's not one of those things that people want to be experts on. So I don't think anyone's <laughs> going to fight you over that. You're, you're probably right. Could you give us your definition of burnout? Yeah, I don't quite have a definition for it, but I can tell you how I was feeling when I was burnt out. So I was feeling overworked, undervalued, and I didn't really feel productive in my job anymore. So I felt I was starting to feel pretty ineffective. What do you think are the first signs that we as developers should try and focus on to see that we are indeed breaking down hard? Chronically exhausted, being chronically exhausted, meaning you always feel overextended, you're drained emotionally, physically, you just you feel like you can't unwind or recover. If you're feeling just as tired when you wake up as when you got to bed, that's pretty problematic. You start becoming cynical or detached from your job. If you have start becoming cold and distant towards your job or your coworkers, if you kind of try to minimize your involvement at work, or if you give up on your ideals or start, you know, distancing, that that can kind of be a sign that you're trying to protect yourself from exhaustion. And if you're starting to feel increasingly ineffective on your job, so you feel inadequate, 
if every new project starts to seem overwhelming or work that you used to do before starts seeming like a, a thing that, you know, just overwhelm you day to day. And if you start to lose confidence in your ability, in your ability to make a difference, you lose confidence in yourself, or if you see that others start losing confidence in you, those are all signs of kind of this burnout attitude and burnout um, having an effect on you. There's this thing that, that you said that uh, you kind of start losing confidence in yourself. I think that sometimes people may experience it, but think that it's something like imposter syndrome or something. Yeah, when it's kind of, you know, packed in with all of these other symptoms. Well, coming with my experience with depression, usually these symptoms, they accumulate over time and they don't just hit at one moment. So it's very difficult to realize since the buildup is so slow that you're actually having a problem. And for me personally, it was somebody had to point out to me that I am having a problem. How did you come to realize that, oh, wait, I am experiencing a severe problem here? Was it something that happened? Was it the person? Was it the book? It was a it was a light bulb moment. I came across this blog post called Recovering from Burnout. The author was Kieran Tai, and he references this book called The Truth About Burnout, How Organizations Cause Personal Stress and What to Do About It. And this book was published in 2000, and this blog post hit me so hard that I actually went and purchased it and read it. And the reason I had that light bulb moment and realized that I was burnt out was because I kind of assumed that burnout was a thing that happened to people that work too much, that it was just kind of this one-to-one reaction. And after making some mistakes early on in my career, I tried really hard not to work too much, you know, not having my work email on my phone and just having a clear separation. And I found this blog post and it had a list of six things in your organization that can contribute to workplace burnout. And only one of those things was working too much. And so I read that list and saw that all the other five items matched my workplace situation. And it was just like, boom, light bulb moment. I felt kind of the floor drop out beneath me because I realized that all these things that I was feeling were burnout and they weren't necessarily my fault. Any way you could give an example of those six mismatches? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And and just to know, I'm going to be referencing my notes that I took from reading this book quite a bit. Oh, that is awesome. You are more prepared than we are. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) The book is pretty long and and pretty boring. If you have the time, I recommend reading it. But this is just kind of, you know, cheat mode. So the six mismatches. The first one is the most obvious one. That's work overload. You're just, you're feeling overloaded. You work long hours, you take your work home, you're checking your work email on your phone, you end up conceding your time by doing things like working while you're on vacation, or you devote your time to tasks that aren't personally rewarding and that aren't enjoyable to you and don't further your career. Because at the end of the day, you know, from your company's perspective, your workload is your productivity, productivity level. But from your perspective, your workload is actually your time and energy, right? You're giving something up. The second mismatch is a lack of control. People want to have an opportunity to make choices, make decisions. They want to have, uh, use their ability to think and problem solve, and they want to have input in the process of achieving outcomes, right? And they want to be held accountable for that. If you're in a workplace that has a lot of kind of narrow one-size-fits-all policies that don't leave room for you to innovate, if you are under someone who's micromanaging you, the cost in that is it kind of diminishes your capacity to adapt and take initiative. 
And it also sends the message that people, your manager specifically thinks that you can't be trusted or that they don't respect your judgment or that you're not smart or you're incapable of doing this sort of stuff by yourself. I once uh, read something that says that uh, people don't quit their jobs, they quit their managers. I honestly believe this. Uh, one job that I quit was solely because of the manager. I actually really liked her job, but they changed managers. Do you see there's some truth to this? Oh, absolutely. I stayed at one job for way too long, even though it wasn't a good fit because my manager was amazing and I learned so much from him. And if he wasn't there, I probably would have moved on quite a bit sooner. I think sometimes people forget how important managers are. I think sometimes developers go into a phase where they think they can't grow anymore, so they become managers and forget that not everyone is cut out to be a manager, that the people skills are the hardest skills. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that bad managers aren't necessarily always, um, it's not obvious when someone's a bad manager. I've had managers that ended up kind of treating me poorly in subtle ways. And I didn't realize what was happening until months or years after that experience when I had the opportunity to do some self-reflection. I think you also, if depending on how you had managers, like for example, that manager that I had was one of my first ones. So you kind of get this horrible impression. So after that, I was in that company, for example, I went to a company that was like, there were no managers in that company. It was a flat, flat hierarchy. And when I changed to the company that I'm currently in, they said, you're going to have a manager. And I was like, oh God, it's going to, <laughs> it's going to be that again. And he's, and he's amazing. And uh, I see the value in managers, but I think you, you need to start with a good foundation. Otherwise you'll just be like, you'll just be damaged with managers for life. Yeah. And sometimes the company policy can dictate how the manager is going to act and behave and treat you. So it depends. It can certainly be a combination of things. Absolutely. So the next thing is a values conflict. And that can occur when there is a mismatch between the requirements of your job and your personal principles. Uh, so some examples of this are when your job leads you to do things that are unethical and clash with your personal values, like being required to tell a lie to make a sale or having to cover up a mistake. And uh, this can also be expressed when there's a discrepancy between the company's mission statement and how the company actually acts and implements it. That makes a lot of sense. As someone who worked for an advertisement agency in the beginning of my career, I had this clash of, of values. We were marketing in a really shady way to really shady companies. Not shady companies, but you know, insurance companies, alcohol companies, and that caused a lot of friction and tension. So I can relate to that. Yeah. I worked in a horse betting company as well. And yeah, we all sometimes just sat down and we're like, what are we doing? You just constant horses, is that it? You just, you just hate horses? I thought so. No, I, no, the problem is that they hit the horses, Antonis. They're dick to the horses. Like horse betting is a thing in the US. Like I didn't even know before I joined the company. And uh, we sometimes saw the race and we we're like, why are we doing this? Yeah, I can see how that would be incredibly painful. Next one. <laughs> keep, keep going so we can relate. <laughs> uh, my experience with the values conflict, I've worked in an organization that had this, you know, really lofty values conflict of, you know, we're all going to work together and do great. But the reality of the situation was that nobody in management wanted to put in the hard work to make those values a reality. And so they just felt really cheap. The hanging on posters on walls. So the next one is uh, insufficient reward. So a lack of reward for contributions that you've done to the job. And that lack of reward can be monetary, but 
it can also be um, internal. Like when you don't get any recognition, the work that you do becomes devalued. And that loss of internal reward that comes when someone actually takes pride in doing something important, doing something of value and doing that job well just starts to dissipate and go away. Yeah, that that also rings a bell. (laughs) I know. We've all had our horrible stories. Yeah, I was reading this blog post just kind of slack-jawed, like, how do you know about my life? Uh, So the next one is unfairness. Uh, I just remembered. I remember. That's Sarah's trigger word every time. You know, fairness in the workplace that kind of shows up when people are shown respect and when their self-worth is confirmed. And having a mutual respect amongst people who work together, it's kind of the heart of a sense of community. So an organization that doesn't show fairness, you you end up kind of losing trust in them. You don't believe in their authority. You don't believe that they're honest. And you don't believe that they respect you or what you're doing. Some of the ways these things can show up is unfairness in the evaluation or promotion process. So playing favorites or promoting people that don't actually do the work because they're popular or whatever else. Getting blamed for things that you didn't do having an inequity of workload or of pay. When you see people who bend the rules or cheat in order to get ahead and they're not caught, you know, basically like when money is taking precedence over employees. And this can also show up when there's procedures in place that for disputes that don't allow both parties to have a voice. So uh, for example, I've come across this in an organization where I worked that kept on a toxic developer because he was perceived as being valuable and productive. And they just kind of ignored the negative effect he was having on everybody that he worked with. Isn't that a case with a lot of companies where they only look at the utilitarian value? They look at people as utilities, but they don't really consider the emotional background that is present in the team. That's definitely problematic. I was just thinking that I come from a different side of products and and industry. I'm I'm a designer and it's so much more... Well, I'm not saying different, but since you have to work really closely with designers, toxicity is much more visible and much more immediate, but usually have very few designers in the team. So it is difficult to resolve conflicts. I had a case, for example, where there were six of us in the team, in, in, a, in a team, like um, there, were five devel- there were five developers and quality analysts, and there was a project manager. And one of the, pre- the people that worked on that team was a complete and it was a toxic person and there was nothing we could do. And everyone spoke to everyone to try and get him out and no one did anything about it. He literally only got out of the team when there was no team for him to be in. That is one of the things that I think it's the worst is when everyone agrees on something and you just like, we can't work like this and no one cares. Just no one listens to you. Even if you're sick, five people saying the same thing and people from previous teams that he was in still saying the same thing. And uh, he's still there. He's still in the same company. And he's not even productive, though. So I don't know why. Like, and uh, this is a a huge problem. About the unfairness, I think people should know how much they're worth. And I think that to people know, to for people sometimes to know how much they're worth, mainly if they're young, younger or young, whatever, they need to know how much they're supposed to make and how much other people make. It doesn't need to have names or faces attached to it, but like something attached to it. And um, so I didn't have no idea how much I, I deserved at the point where I was in a, in a company. And um, the same person was, of all of us, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't a good developer. He was like, he was a super toxic person and he wasn't a good developer. He was like 
we couldn't really count on him to like when we had sprints or anything. And then one day the company decided to, um, to basically allow us to have like this open salary thing where each of us put our salaries in. And when we opened the salaries, we realized that he was the most paid employee of all of the team. And I was the team leader of a team where I was the least paid employee of the entire team. That was the moment where I was like, no, this is not going to work. This is not okay. And you're like, oh, we didn't know. Yeah, but it's kind of your job to know that these things are not okay. And that was why I was like, ah, I remember this. Did the company encourage this? Um, encourage you all to share your salaries? Not quite. I think the, the thing that happened was somebody mentioned we were going to create this and no one stopped us. I think the main issue that happened in there was that it was a very flat structured company. So, and it grew really fast. So they probably didn't even know that they had these problems until it was presented to them. The, the, the moment I went to one of my bosses, like the real boss and was like, I make this and he makes this. It was like, that doesn't make any fucking sense. What is going on? I think you, you, you feel like you feel so bad when you feel like you're so unvalued and you feel like you've been, it's super unfair to you and it's super unfair to everyone else on that team. And I think that was the moment where like, for example, all of that team is now working in other companies. Some of them are actually with me again. It's, it's one of those things where you can see where the point of failure was. And it's something that could have been so easily avoided by just caring, seeing things, just taking the time. Oh, yeah. And so I was like, when you said unfairness, I was like, ah, I remember this one. I was there. I was the <laughs> team lead and I made the least amount of money. <laughs> uh, that kind of leads into something that I saw at the organization that burned me out the most. And that was that the women in my organization who did the most work were not promoted. So they'd be recognized with shallow words or titles like team lead, but not actually be promoted to the next level or given the salary increase that they deserve. Oh, that explains it. Because I was like, oh, Sarah, you're not team lead. Am I going to get a pay raise? No. Oh, okay. Something else that, my, that the burnout organization did is that they had secret projects that were organized by the architects and kept hidden from the other engineers. So we weren't given an opportunity to advance our skills or learn from them because they were just having meetings behind closed doors. That is so skeezy. Right? I think this is the, the right word. It's just like, it's just skeezy. It's weird. Why would you want to do that? The best organization that I've worked at, which is a 20-person startup, they combated this by having a spreadsheet with everyone's salaries. But instead of kind of having people fill that in after the fact and having surprises, you just you had a base salary and then you had multipliers in the spreadsheet for things like uh, years of experience or cost of living. So if you lived in an especially high cost of living city, I think there was a, a multiplier there as well. And, you know, it was out in the open. There was it was formulaic. And so it was just easy to see that there are no favorites being played. Everyone was on the same playing field and it felt very fair. I loved it. It's kind of like GitLab works, I think. They, they pretty much have the same thing, which I think you know, and it works. There is no feelings involved, and it's just, if you work good, you get money. Yeah. And that's it. That's exactly how it should be, and unfortunately, it's not. Uh... So the very last one is the lack of community. The result of people losing a positive connection with each other in the workplace because at the end of the day, people thrive in community, right? They function best when there's praise, there's comfort, there's happiness and humor shared with other people on the team that they like and that they respect. But 
jobs can be really isolating. You can be physically separated. Um, I've been remote for three years, although that's a topic for a whole other podcast. People might spend a lot of their time in front of their computers, like everyone in tech (laughs) does, or people just might be too busy to get together. And the most destructive thing to a sense of community is chronic and unresolved conflict. So conflict can end up giving a workplace a tinge of frustration, anger, fear, anxiety, feeling disrespectful, feeling that like you are being disrespected, um, feeling suspicion with your coworkers. It ends up tearing apart the fabric of support. When you are kind of trying to push people away and you're trying to protect yourself, it's going to make it less likely that you or other people on your team are going to try to help each other when times get tough. Remind me strongly of a situation that I have experienced at some point within one of my teams where there was a severe conflict. It's a very small team that for a very long time was very tightly knit. We had really good community, actual community. Uh, There was a lot of respect. Everyone was listened to. There was recognition of everyone's expertise and opinions and preferences and emotions. And at certain point, there was an influx of people that were coming from a very different background. Instead of a small startup or more design-focused or maker-focused community, people were coming from uh, more corporate environments where there is certain expectation of you recognizing, sorry, not recognizing, you respecting someone just on the basis of their Seniority. Seniority, exactly. If Even if it's just purely arbitrary, let's say this person will be senior manager, so you have to respect them no matter what and not question that. And there was a very strong conflict between people who want to make things rapidly and iterate and test them and people who are actually passionate for design and engineering and folks who are really good at management, but they are exceptionally corporate in the way that they want to embed lots of checkpoints within the process, which sometimes slows down the team. And if you're working within a small company, it's very difficult to maintain a a corp, like a bureaucratic engine. And there was no way to resolve the situation because there's like half and half. One half of the team was very driven to make things fast. The other half of the team was very, no, let's do it by the book. And due to lack of understanding, I guess, there was no, like the community broke. There was like a very clear division right in the middle of the company. It was very difficult to find a resolution. So Yes, from my personal experience, lack of community or even worse, loss of community is very painful and can trigger a lot of emotional issues. I have once heard the most aggressive story about the type of like having no community at work that I've ever heard in my life. So I've heard this story once from um, someone I know that she worked in a place where you were literally not allowed to talk to people. Oh, wow. That's horrible. I know. We're all very confused at this. So literally, you would sit down and like you couldn't talk to the person next to you. And I was like, okay, but was there Slack? And she was like, no, there was very, a lot of years ago, there were, you couldn't even message someone. Like you were literally a code monkey. You were supposed to look at your computer for eight hours and you had to clock out to go to the bathroom. I didn't know this was a thing. And I was... It's brilliant. (laughs) You know what's amazing? She still made friends. And I'm like, how? We talked in the elevators. (laughs) Was this like a secret project or something? I've never heard of this before. I find that so wild. Uh, I don't think so. I think it was like the the whole company. Like it was a dev. The dev part of the company was all like that. Like they had this like, if you think about it in a very purely analytical way, like you have absolutely no feelings or regards for human emotions. If people don't talk to each other, they'll work more and be more productive. But like, it doesn't work that way, obviously. 
I don't know, it was probably founded by robots or something. Or maybe somebody was reading a lot of Charles Dickens and they wanted to have like this Victorian era sweatshop um, vibe in the company. That's great. That's a great idea. That is literally a code monkey, dude. That is, what the fuck? I was so like shocked by this. Yeah, I, I don't know how she took it. How long did she work there? I think she actually worked there for some time. At the moment, she said she really needed the money, and also they, uh, she was eventually like promoted because everyone else quit. So they actually upped her salary, and she really needed the money. Eventually, she quit like everyone else. It's just mind blowing that these, these, this is a thing that people actually believe that if you don't talk to other humans, you'll be more productive. Yeah, no, that's when the company values profits over the people that work there. But this is like a super extreme thing. She did say they have really good documentation because they couldn't talk to each other. <laughs> So that's good. <laughs> you know, I wanted to ask you, so giving these six symptoms, I'm going to call them symptoms, what were your coping mechanisms or what were your, what was your response? How did you try to solve the problem? By the time that I had came across this blog post and kind of connected all the dots about everything that was happening with me, everything that I was feeling, I was ready to leave. I had kind of gone past the point of no return, but that situation differs for everyone. You know, sometimes you need the money and you have to stay on. I think in tech, we are very, very lucky that we can jump uh, when we need to. That is so true. Yeah. I think it's something that sometimes we forget how lucky we are that sometimes if we don't like our jobs, we can just quit. Yeah. And, and we'll get a new job. I, I was lucky enough to find a job that's like the perfect opportunity. It's the perfect kind of fit for me and what I want to be doing. And I, I can chat a little bit more about this later on if we want to talk about some of the things that I've been doing to kind of work on my burnout. Yeah, we're we're lucky in tech and and I don't think other other types of jobs have it as good as we do. Sometimes you just have to stay on whether you have commitments or you have a family or people that you need to take care of. So I, I believe that, for example, I think um, a lot of my family, um, I'm originally from Portugal. Originally, I literally moved three days ago. I'm from Portugal. <laughs> Years ago. I, I am now from Berlin. I am so cool. Um, and the, so Portugal is slight, it's, it's, it's not a very, it's poor. It's kind of poor. Let's just put it that way. I think it has always been taught in my family that like you're supposed to hate your job, like that no one does their job because they like their job. And it's super, it's so confusing to my mom when I tell her that I like my job. And it's something that I don't think a lot of people actually know what it's like. And sometimes we don't value that part as well when we like, oh, I like my job. And people just get so confused. Like all of my friends who work in several things, like from factories to restaurants or anything, are so, so confused when I tell them that I like my job. It makes absolutely no sense to them. And I feel like sometimes we forget that everyone else lives their lives sometimes like hating their job and just doing it because they have to. Yeah. And we forget how lucky we are. I also think, uh, just, just to backtrack a little bit, based on this book, a mismatch in any one of those six areas can start someone on the path to burnout. You know, it, d it doesn't have to be a horrible place to work where all of these things are affecting you in order for you to start down that path. I think a lot of times, I especially, when I figured out what was happening, I blamed myself, blamed myself for not having a better attitude or not, you know, reacting better to what was going on, or maybe I should have been the one trying harder to fix things in my organization. But at the end of the day, it's not your fault as an individual. You know, it's an interesting thing you're saying here, because I've, I've noticed this before, there is 
a, I wouldn't say it's a culture, but there is a common trend where corporate entities, studios, companies, teams, giants. Yeah, yes, thank you. They try to shift the responsibility of a bad environment onto workers, but and they try to get rid of the responsibility as the ones who set the tone. I might be wrong here, but at least that's my experience with um, large corporations or larger companies trying to say, no, 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 this is your, this is your responsibility. We'll give you the opportunity. You do. You go. Go and fix it. I, I think it's something that affects organizations of all size. Sometimes people just don't want to take responsibility for making a bad work environment for others, and I think sometimes they also don't know the effects of their actions on other people. So this reminds me of the "we have a ping pong table, we're a good company" type of thing. Right. That even if it's really bad inside, you can sleep on it between two different shifts. Yes. Yeah. I actually had people sleeping in my old office, so it's <laughs> oh, no. not a joke. Yeah, I had the same thing. We had actually sleeping, um, well, not booths, but it was like humongous box that was covered in pillows from top to bottom, and you could sort of slither inside and sleep there for twenty minutes because you would have to do twelve-hour shifts. Oh no, I don't mean twenty minutes. I mean the night. Oh. Okay. Oh. I took naps at work. Like I do that because I like naps. That's okay, but like uh, there were people who literally slept there. I think there was a time where I went home at six a.m. or something. I may have had a problem. Now that I look at it, you know, I was wondering. So changing your job is it, it helps you remove the the source of problem. However, from my experience and from what I've heard, it might be a bit too late. As in the problem, this the mental issue is already settled in, and it takes a lot of coping mechanisms or a lot of therapy or other methods to restore your mental health. From your personal experience or maybe from articles or books you've read, what could you advise to engineers or designers? What can they do? How can they help themselves? So I think step one is kind of admitting that you're burned out and trying to have some self-reflection to see how that happened. At least for myself, I was in denial for quite a long time and once I was able to kind of look at the big picture and, and see that I was burnt out and that's why I was having all these negative feelings, that was kind of step one uh, in the path to recovery. And to be honest, I'm not fully recovered. It's a little bit scary to think about, but I'm actually not sure if I'll ever be fully recovered because with burnout, you know, that old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That applies here a lot. Like once you're burnt out, you've kind of hit that rock bottom and finding ways to start engaging yourself again can be difficult. But something that's helped me is kind of, we talked about in the beginning that when I started feeling burned out, I was overworked. I felt undervalued and didn't really feel like I was effective. I didn't feel like I was in control of the job that I was doing. So the opposite of that is just like feeling enthusiastic, having more interest in my job. The way that I've been accomplishing that is by picking up new hobbies where I can challenge myself. So I've been doing software for a long time. I started playing with hardware, started programming microcontrollers. I found that fun and challenging. It allowed me to work in a state of flow. I don't know if you guys know about that the state of flow, that kind of that feeling when you're working on something that's just beyond your reach and you're really engaged, you're learning new things and it feels like the world is melting away. It also applies to video games. Yes. <laughs> Although, I don't know, you get that state of flow in video games, but then there is no reward at the end. The reason I like started playing with hardware and microcontrollers is unlike software, at the end of my project, when I'm done, I have something that I can hold. 
something that blinks with LEDs or is fun in another way. Um, And that's something I never got with software. Quitting my job at that toxic workplace and starting in an organization, I mean, I don't know, it helped a lot. Um, The people that I work with are really professional. And in my workplace, I'm allowed to do the job that I want to do in the best way that I want to do it. So nobody is micromanaging me. I have an organization where people are kind of experienced and they also start to um, try to battle some of these things. And uh, I don't know, it just kind of really helps feeling like I'm in charge, like I can use my skills, I can, I can reason, I can kind of put my best forward, forward in the project. Do you believe that like starting a bit as a developer advocate and starting the, like a community around Python and everything actually also helped in the, like the healing in some way? like being a total part of the community, for example? Um, yes and no. I, w- I would say that I was a part of the community before I even started this job. So a lot of the ways that I've been involved, either working on open source software or doing conference talks, I was doing all of that stuff before. I just wasn't getting paid for it, but I did enjoy it a lot. So now my job involves a lot more fun and I get paid. I get paid for you know the things that I like to do to engage with the community. You literally get paid to go to I'm not I'm not making fun because I'm the same thing. But uh, you literally get paid to go to conferences now. We both get paid to go to conferences. Finally. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun and interesting. I um I also get to focus on making Azure better for Python developers, and I have a lot of say in that, which is really exciting. I've heard from the JavaScript part of the developer advocates that they really listen to when someone complains about a node problem or something being slow, that they really listen and trying to fix it, which I think is really, really amazing. Yeah. And it like makes you feel valued. So that is, that is really, really good. It's been really eye-opening. It's, it's definitely an indicator of a healthy organization when you can admit that things aren't good, you can admit that things are broken, and then you can work towards fixing them. Yeah, I agree. I I just wanted to add two cents, actually two, two, not arguments, but two thoughts on this. One thing that I find very interesting is that you said it's so much more rewarding to see something physical by the end of the project. And it is something that I've noticed in graphic designers who work in digital is that some designers that I know who experienced either burnout or depression, they go back from working in front of the computer to doing things for fun with paper, which is very, like, we don't do that anymore, but they actually pull out ink or they pull out watercolor or pencils, or we start doing, sometimes we have collaborative workshops with other designers to just make something out of paper. And that actually provides a lot of realism to your work. Like you you reconnect sort of with the actual physical world and uh, it helps you to diminish the amount of stress you're experiencing. So that was one thought. And the second thought of what you've mentioned before, the first, the very first thing you said was about accepting the fact that you're having a breakdown or you're having a burnout and I would add to that is another important thing in my opinion is apart from realizing that you're having a problem it is important to develop self-compassion because a lot of the talented people that I know who work either in engineering software engineering or design or product design graphic design um, there's a lot of imposed demand for perfection or for exceptionally high level levels of performance and they do not treat themselves well enough uh, performance and quality is prioritized over love for oneself. So I would just, from my perspective, I would probably add it on top of recognizing the problem. It's also developing love for yourself. Yeah, there's a there's a great website called selfcare.tech that goes through a lot of ways that you can take care of yourself. And it's an open source project. So if you find resources that you like, you can contribute to it. 
the second step after kind of admitting that you're burnt out is realizing that it's not your fault. You're you're not to blame. You know, you, you didn't do anything bad. You didn't do anything wrong. And that it's your job. It's the conditions of your job. It's your organization. It's your team. It's your work environment. Those are the things that need to change. That is a really good point. You. I absolutely agree with that. I just want to ask if there is anything else that you want to add, if there is like uh, anything else that, that you want to say in general to someone who may wonder if they, they are burning out. Yeah, um, there, there's a few things I want to add. If, if you do notice that you're burning out, chances are other people on your team, other people in your organization are suffering as well. So if you feel close enough to others, if you do at least have that sense of community, it can be really helpful to talk about some of these things and maybe, you know, distance and distance them from yourself and your feelings. Like, are other people seeing unfairness? Are other people having, are they upset because of insufficient reward? So trying to take kind of that pulse. But the worst thing that you can do is take it upon yourself to try to fix everything. That is not a good idea. You can help steer the organization in better directions, but putting that on yourself is kind of a surefire way to make that burnout worse. Now that I feel like I'm on the path to recovery and uh, I read this blog post, I can see the mismatches for burnout from a mile away. I feel like I'm enabled to start affecting change in my own organization in little ways. So some of the small things that I've done is uh, I started a Slack channel at my job called uh, Celebrate Wins, where people can celebrate their successes that, you know, maybe just like brag a little humble bit, brag. show off your work. Like it's really fun. It's a great, yeah, humble brag or not <laughs> humble brag, actually. Yeah. Be like, I did this. It's I'm dope. proud of it. This is really cool. <laughs> no, no, that, that's really nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those little hits of dopamine are super important and just feeling like you have visibility and other people can share in your success. I'm remote, so I have monthly one-on-one -on -one meetings with people, even when I don't work on them directly. So that helps me kind of retain a sense of community when I'm working remotely and don't interact with my coworkers day to day. And I've also learned to start encouraging people to advocate for themselves when they see unfairness. If they're in a position where they feel safe and comfortable doing so, Saying that makes a lot of sense. Really yeah, help. it's really important for the vis the visibility of these things. The just the saying and the trying to let other people know, I think, is one of the most important steps, and it's also one of the hardest steps. Yeah, it you just you can't shake that feeling that it's something wrong with you, or that you did something bad, or if only you had changed the way you were acting, things would yeah, have turned out differently. It's easier to sometimes I think it's easier to blame yourself than to. Depending on your personality, sometimes it's easier to blame yourself than to like try and blame others in some sort of way, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? No. Mm -hmm. it makes sense in my head. Um, yeah, maybe blame sometimes is a strong word. Shift responsibility. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of English is not my mother language. That's, that's fine. Neither is mine. <laughs> Me either. Yay! <laughs> this was very um, elaborate for three people who actually don't have English as their main language. <laughs> There are too many languages in my head right now, so yeah. I have one more question, and um, if Burnout was a, a person, a real human bipedal creature that walks upright, what would you tell to Burnout? 
Ooh. It's a tough one, I know. What can I say <laughs> that I won't get in trouble for? You can curse in this show, by the way. In what any language that you want, we have said the explicit thing to True. <laughs> we'll provide the translation if necessary. I, I, I used to curse a lot, but then I spent a few years living in Salt Lake City in Utah that has a high religious population. So after uh, a few shocked faces, I've, I've kind of, you know, mostly dumped the cursing out of my system. <laughs> yeah, I think... You know, once burnout is in full swing, it's kind of this horrible thing. I would kind of tell it to dig its own grave and crawl in there and bury itself. But if you're someone who's at that point where you kind of have like an itch or a twinge or you kind of feel some of these things coming up and you're you're not all the way into burnout yet, maybe make burnout something, you know, that you can study and learn from. And, and start that process of self-care and fixing your situation so that you don't fall, fall into it. Like once you're in the hole, it's so hard to climb out. Sorry, you and I, we both, we can, we both can say yes to that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a long way up when you go really down. Oh, God. Thanks, Santos. Thank you for sharing my shame. Have the two of you gone through burnout? Uh, I had a like a complete. I started having panic attacks and everything. Like I had like a complete mental breakdown. Basically, I worked. This this was when I was team lead. Like I, no, this was before I was. Team. I worked too hard. It, that, mine was mostly too hard. Uh, I worked from like nine to nine or something like that. It was insane, and uh, I literally had a mental breakdown. So, just winner. I had the same. I had a similar situation. God damn it, Anton! Just let me have this. <laughs> did I? Did I? <laughs> Sorry, yours is so much more unique compared to mine. Mine was very trivial. Thank you. Mine was nothing like yours. <laughs> is that better? No. <laughs> I was working for um, I was working abroad for four years, and I was working in a very small country that has a very small market. It's literally ten design studios and lots of design graduates, and mean that means that the market is very small, and everyone is trying to compete. So I did my best, working from nine to six, and then going home, learning new stuff, doing freelancing, making sure that. I'm known outside my own studio and then I had to move abroad and once I moved abroad to UK I again had to prove myself so that meant that it means that I haven't had Holly for several years and I would work 10 13 hours a day and at some point when I moved to a company that was very robotic in their approach to humans to people uh, I completely burned out and um, it sort of brought back my general underlying depression so I went from that I went through that very specific crisis two years ago, and ever since then, I'm trying to be very articulate with myself. Uh, how am I doing, and where am I right now mentally? Am I am, am I relapsing, or am not? Am I not relapsing? Yeah, that's so important. Yeah, I also I try to not do things that I am against. I think that one of the things that really broke me was that I did something that I was fundamentally against. I don't do things that I'm like, I don't, I'm not going to do this. This is wrong. If something feels wrong to me, I just, I stop doing it. I think that really actually helped in some ways because I only do things pretty much that I don't have to be passionate about, but that I like and that I'm not against. And I think that helps so much. Honestly, it gets like this huge weight out of my shoulders. Yeah, absolutely. I think in my 12 years in tech, I've gone through several cycles of burnout and not really fully treating myself just because I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it had a name. I didn't know it was a thing that other people felt. So I, I think about winter of last year was when I realized that I was fully burnt out. And um, I took 
uh, let's see, about four weeks off between jobs. I, I wish it was a little bit longer, but I took time off. I went on vacation. I kind of changed a lot about my, my work environment and how I treat myself and started practicing more self-care. And it's helped quite a bit. Uh, someone on Twitter told me that you should treat yourself like you treat a pull request. <laughs> you never tell someone that their pull request is shit. Like you tell them that was okay, but you should improve here. And uh, I think that's also, that's that's a, actually a really good analogy, I think, that uh, you, sh- you shouldn't treat yourself ever like as worse than you would treat someone's pull request. To be sure that you know that you're being decent to yourself. Yeah, having self-compassion. This is very, very informative. And thank you so much for sharing with us. And I do appreciate, well, we both appreciate honesty and openness. And we know how difficult it is to talk about these subjects. And it takes a lot of resilience and bravery to be honest with people that you barely know or don't know at all. I'm very happy that we have, we're having these conversations because it's so important, at least from my perspective, to share these stories with people that might be having or are having, definitely having. I know that there are lots of people having these problems, but are unable to articulate that to themselves clearly or they misinterpret the symptoms or signals that their bodies give, give to them. So it's, I, I really appreciate this. Thank you very much. Yeah, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming. It's so refreshing. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's refreshing to hear people talk about it. So I, I don't think we can thank you enough for being a part of this and um, helping us reach more people and try and make more people treat themselves like pull requests, I guess, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Practice self-care. Practice self-care. So uh, we'll leave all the links to the uh, the blog post that you mentioned, also the book and self-care.tech on the description. And um, thank you so much for coming, Nina. It was a pleasure. So this is it. Uh, Sarah, what do you think? How are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. I don't feel like I just shared my life. That's cool. That's good. For the first time ever in the long history of free episodes, we weren't complaining or talking about ourselves. Uh, we were actually talking to a very interesting person and we got we got lots of stuff to share with you folks. So hopefully you're going to like this episode. Also, Luton was not mentioned in this entire episode, which is kind of amazing. It either means two things. Either we've grown as humans or Luton does not exist anymore. Oh my God, I hope it's the second one. Now, folks... If you have any questions, if you have any ideas, suggestions, please leave your comments. Follow our guest on Twitter. And if you're feeling super happy about things or not happy about things, actually, what am I saying here? Please do follow all links in the description. And we'll see you next time. Bye, Zs. See you later, folks. See you later, alligator.